Now please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's passage is from Matthew chapter 7. I'll read for us verses 21 through 27, but we will be in verses 24 through 27 primarily this morning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You can be seated. Well, good morning. You know, there are times and passages that a, that a preacher gets to preach from that can be good object lessons for himself uh, in, the, in the process. And this morning I am very thankful that my confidence for the effectiveness of this sermon is not based on myself. It's not based on, on my abilities, uh, the eloquence of my speech, or anything else. It's based on the foundation of Christ, that these are His words spoken to His people, that His Spirit will work within His people to give them ears to hear, to make them able to see, to draw them to obedience, to show them the kindness of their Savior. And I'm so thankful that my confidence in preaching is in Christ and not in myself. We arrive this morning at the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it is appropriate that we feel a sense of satisfaction at having so diligently worked through the longest and most famous of all of Jesus' teachings. This is, as we have said many times before, Jesus' messianic manifesto. It is here that he has shattered the old paradigms of how men believed that they were to approach God's law and how they were to approach righteousness. It is here that he revealed how the people needed to respond to the new world that they found themselves in now that the kingdom of heaven had arrived. We read Jesus' words in this sermon, and to us, everything sounds familiar. Everything sounds comforting, comfortable. We have heard it all before. These words are so familiar to us that we have to work hard to make sure that we don't just glaze over and let them wash over us as some familiar and favorite movie. But we need to remember 
that what is so familiar and comfortable to us in the Sermon on the Mount was shocking and revolutionary to those ears who heard it directly from Christ. This message wasn't intended to first and foremost serve as a warm blanket, bringing comfort and lulling us to sleep. The sermon was given as a blast of ice water to the face to shake people out of their sleep, to warn them of the dangers that they faced, and then to motivate them to take action. The last few weeks, we have been focusing on the call to action that Jesus gave at the end of his sermon. After laboring so diligently to show the crowds how they must think, how they must speak, and how they must act, if they would be citizens of this new kingdom that had arrived with Christ, and then contrasting the heart and the actions of the hypocrites and that of the true disciple, Jesus closed his teachings with a series of warnings that carried with him a call to action if the impending doom that was at hand was to be escaped. The first warning and call to action that Jesus gave to his people is that all men, all men who were born under the curse were traveling on a broad path to destruction that if they remained as they were, they would meet a sure doom. They needed to enter by a narrow gate. They needed then to walk that narrow path if they would find life. If they continued on the way they were going, they would be destroyed. They had to take action. They could not afford to remain in the status quo of their nation. If they remained with the masses of the people, they would die. They had to take the way of the few and enter through the narrow gates. The second warning was that there were false prophets among the people. There were wolves disguised in sheep's clothing that had as their mission to try and pull people away from that narrow gate, to somehow pull them off of that narrow path. They would pretend to be servants of Christ, and they would not always be easy to spot. They would be crafty, deceitful, appearing as of angels of light, yet bringing with them darkness and death. Jesus warned that you would have to closely evaluate what they said and how they lived if you would recognize them and avoid them. Of course, these would not be the only pretenders that would be mixed in among the people of God. There would also be false disciples among Christ's people, people who believed that they were on the narrow path, people who believed that they had entered through the narrow gates. And some of those pretenders would even make a grand display of their religious devotion and their piety. Some of them might even do great things such as cast out demons in the name of Christ or perform miracles in the name of Christ or prophesy in the name of Christ. Yet ultimately, as their boast was in their works, in their righteousness, 
they would be rejected by Christ. They would hear the most dreadful phrase imaginable when they stood before the throne of Christ. As they approached, expecting accolades for all the wonderful things they had done, instead they would hear our Savior say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Christ warned that if those people that were hearing his words, if they based their confidence on being accepted by God on their works, on their profession, on what they had done, their worth, their righteousness, they would end up hearing these fearful words and be rejected. They needed something else on which to stand than their own works, than their own strength. They needed a better foundation. Of course, that brings us to our passage this morning. In these verses, we see the wisdom of building on the proper foundation and the folly of choosing the wrong one. Just as we have seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, again, the true disciple of Christ and the hypocrite are put on display before us. Here we see how the true disciple builds upon the strong and stable foundation and the hypocrite builds on a foundation that is ever-changing and shifting. When the trials of life come, one is left standing and the other falls. We are going to see as we look at this illustration from Christ that this is an issue of a foundation over a form. The hypocrite is focused on the form. They're focused on how they appear before men. They're focused on how grand of a display of their righteousness, their piety, they can put on display for others to see. Yet the true disciple is concerned with the foundation on which they stand. They're wanting to please God, and they want their hearts to be pure. And they want their actions to flow out of the purity of their hearts. The true disciple and the hypocrite in this passage are shown as builders who choose very different foundations on which to build their homes. As we reflect on this, remember that in this illustration, we are giving no indication of their homes being significantly different. No indication that they're different in quality, in size, in construction, or anything else. Throughout this illustration, the foundation is what is crucial. In calm weather, there would be nothing to say that one house was superior to the other. Only the arrival of a storm with its strong winds and torrential downpour could reveal the difference one from the other. And then the difference that is exposed is not the quality of the building, but the stability of the foundation. I ask you to join me once more in prayer as we work to complete the Sermon on the Mount. Father, we turn to you and we ask that you would be 
merciful and gracious to us as we know is in your character to be to your children. We do confess our weakness, the frailty of our minds, how quick we are distracted, how silly things of the world can grab our attention and pull us away from those things that matter most. We confess our weakness to you, Father, and we ask that you would be gracious to us, that by your Spirit you would hold our attention on your Word, on your Son, on your Gospel, that we would hear the call to action in the words of Christ, and that we would respond in faith. We would place our hope and our trust in your Son and not in anything that is in us or in the world. Be gracious to us, Father, and be glorified as we gather to worship you, praising your glory. Praise in Christ's holy name. Amen. When Jesus began this final illustration of the Sermon on the Mount by saying, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who has built his house on the rock. Well, for this moment, we're going to focus on the first half of that verse. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Well, we have said that the two types of people that Jesus is dis distinguishing between are the true disciples and the hypocrites. The initial differentiating mark, which bears itself out in the choice of the foundation on which they build, was whether they acted according to the words of Jesus or if they ignored and rejected his call to action. What is clear in this passage is that both of them hear the words of Christ. This isn't one of those discussions about some distant tribe on a remote hill in some distant land that has never heard the name of Christ. That is a separate conversation. Yet even then, Paul makes clear that the, there is enough knowledge of God present in nature for people to know that there is a God and to then suppress the truth that they know of God in unrighteousness and be guilty. But this passage is a discussion about two types of people who have both heard the words of Christ. Specifically in this context, it is about two groups of first century Jews who are raised and steeped in the law of God and the traditions of their fathers. Two groups of people who have both heard of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, who have both heard of the Messiah wandering throughout the land, giving teaching as he went and eradicating disease and illness everywhere he went when all the sick were brought to him and he healed them. These are people who had heard his messianic manifesto. They had heard his warnings. They had heard his call to action. 
ignorance wouldn't be an excuse anyway. But in this case, it isn't even a factor. So what distinguishes these two groups of hearers? Well, one hears and obeys, and the other hears and ignores. The first group hears, they believe what they have heard, and they reorient their lives accordingly. They believe that the kingdom of heaven has arrived, and they live their lives differently because of what God's Messiah has called them to. The other hears, and no matter what they claim to believe about it, they do not reorient their lives accordingly. They do not truly believe what Jesus had said because they don't live any differently. They do not follow the path that Christ has laid out before them. Think about the difference here and why the action in response to the message of Christ is so important. Even if both people said they believed what Jesus had said, the truthfulness of their words could only be validated if they followed through with that belief in action. Because these people were not given a neutral message. They were given a revolutionary message that demanded action. If they really believed what Jesus said, they could not help but think and speak and act differently because of it. To remain as they were, which as we have already been told was on the broad path to destruction, is to prove that they really did not believe the message that Christ had told them. So the people that we would want to be associated with in this story are those who hear the words of Christ and do them. This is how we should want to be known as those who are obedient to the call of Christ. I love the way that it is put in this verse, everyone who hears these words and does them. There's direct action taken because of what has been heard and believed. A paradigm shift Constraining a, containing a strong warning and a call to action demands action. And beloved, in every context, not just in first century Israel, in every context, the gospel is a paradigm shift containing warnings and a call to action. In every context, the gospel of Christ demands action demands a response. We spend a lot of time emphasizing that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ, and rightly so. Salvation is not something that we earn. It is not something that we achieve. There is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor or to merit His love. However, if that is the end of our conversation about salvation, if that is the end of our conversation about what it means to follow Christ, then we are missing something crucial. John wrote in 1 John 5, 2 and 3, 
By this we know that we love the children of God when we obey God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Jesus says it even more clearly in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we really believe in Jesus, that he truly is who he said he was, which is the son of God who came to die to pay our debt and then was raised again to life, that we might receive his righteousness. If we truly believe that, then we will do what he says. There's no way around that. If we really believe, we will obey. If we really believe, we will go out and be and do things differently. What he claimed was too grand, too revolutionary, too magnificent for us to believe that it is true, to really believe it and yet remain unchanged. The one who believes will be saved. The one who believes will follow and obey. Jesus said that they will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But putting these verses together with what has come just before, I think we can safely summarize what is being said like this. The rock is trusting in Christ and his word, while the sand is trusting in one's works and one's own righteousness. The man who builds his house upon the rock Pictures the one who hears the words of Christ and then determines to build their life around what Christ had taught. He will think the way that Christ has taught him to think. He will do what Christ has taught him to do. He will love what Christ has taught him to love. He will avoid what Christ has taught him to avoid. And he will despise those things that Christ has taught him to despise. His life will be shaped by the faith that he has placed in Jesus and in the myriad of ways that he thinks, speaks, and acts because he believes the words that Christ has said. He believes the danger he was warned about is real that it really was a situation of life and death, and not just physical life here and now, but eternal spiritual death under the wrath of God. He knows that on his own, he cannot please God. On his own, he must face the wrath of God for his failure. He knows and he believes that the traditions of his fathers and the other spiritual leaders of his people represent vast errors that have led the people to the brink of ruin. That when the Messiah finally came with his kingdom, that the message was not, well done, welcome your king. The message was, the axe is already at the root of the tree. Repent, therefore, and believe. The wise man believes that God has sent his son to exemplify, perfectly fulfill, and perfectly explain the heart behind God's law. He believes that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, 
and the only way to life. And because he actually believes all of these things, he obeys the words of Christ. He builds upon the rock that is Christ. He lives his life in harmony with the appeal of Paul in Colossians 2, 6 through 10. I invite you to turn with me there. Colossians 2, 6 through 10. Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. Chapter 2, 6 through 10. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The wise man is rooted in Jesus Christ, and therefore his foundation is stable. He has meditated upon the word of God, and he is determined in his heart that he might not sin against God. He has readily established Christ as Lord in his heart. He understands the danger that is all around him in this world. So he is ever on the alert. Not because he is ruled by fear, but because he has made himself ready for the trials that he knows will come his way. So what is the result of the wise man's building on such a firm foundation? He is not easily moved. He is not easily rattled. He is not ruled by whim or emotion. He will not be tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. He makes use of the many gifts that God has given to the church. Turn with me to Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. First and second Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And listen carefully here. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are grown up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from which the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up 
in love. So why must those who follow Christ be given so many tools that Paul lists that God gave to the church? Why must they work so hard and diligently to be correctly founded on the rock that is Christ? Because this life to which we are called is difficult. It is hard. It is dangerous. Beloved, trials and persecution are a feature, not an unfortunate byproduct of following Christ. We need to come to grips with that if we would be properly motivated to act as the wise man acted and build upon the rock that is Christ. The wise man there did so out of necessity because he knew that a storm was coming. These kind of storms were a prominent feature in that environment in Israel. His king had forewarned him of the dangers that were coming, of the trials that he would face, and he had believed the words of his king. Matthew 5, 10-12 Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. 2 Corinthians 4, 7-12 But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show us that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. James 1, 2-4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 1 Peter 1.6-7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And just one more, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I know that was a lot. But I wanted to show you just how prevalent this theme is in Scripture. As Christians, we will face trials. We will face persecution. We will have to deal with heartache and suffering that comes to us only because we are Christians. Faithfulness to Christ will be met by the hatred of the world. We may have had an easier time of it than most in this country, but we will not escape this reality if we live lives that testify that we actually believe this call, these warnings of Christ and this call to action. Well, did you notice a pattern in those verses? The true disciple can remain steadfast. They can even find joy when they face the storms that come against them. Because the disciple of Christ knows that those storms will only serve to prove the stability of his foundation. The storms prove the glory and the power of our Lord and King. And as those trials serve to make the Christian more like Christ, So we can have joy when facing trials because we know it will have a good result. The Christian is made stronger, more holy, and more pleasing to God through hardship. As I said, trials and persecution are a feature of following Christ. The Christian who has tested his faith and has been strengthened by trial is able to be thankful for whatever it takes that can make him more pleasing to God. He's learned that he can be thankful for whatever it takes that will make him more like his Savior. A sentiment echoed by Charles Spurgeon when he said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Of course, not all who hear the words of Christ believe and act accordingly. Jesus spoke of those who would hear these words of mine and not do them. Most will hear, and even if they believe that there is some truth, some value in what they have heard, they will walk away unchanged. They will essentially ignore the proclamation of the kingdom and the warnings of the doom that is at hand for everybody who will not kiss the Son 
and upon whom his anger yet rests as his anger and his wrath is quickly kindled. Ignoring the words of Christ is the opposite response to the response of faith. And it is the natural response to everybody who does not believe and obey. Those people who hear the truth yet walk away unchanged. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will walk away and go out and be in more obvious rebellious sin than when they came to begin with. Yes, some respond to the call of the gospel by going out in complete and utter rebellion, being as wicked as they have any knowledge to do so. Yet many more will go out and just remain exactly as they were. And some might even appear to be changed for the better for a time. Remember the response of the many just a few verses before. Many will stand before the throne of Christ and boast of calling Jesus Lord. They will boast of having done great things in his name. They will be able to say that they acted, they did things differently. Yet, and this is important, even if their actions in some areas had changed because of what they had heard, their motivations and the heart behind them had not changed. They remained unchanged in the core of where they placed their faith. They did not hear Jesus' words, believe in him and go out and act accordingly in faith. No, they heard the warning and they trusted in themselves to be good enough to escape the doom that was upon them. They did not build upon the rock. The hypocrite that Jesus has been distinguishing from the true disciple throughout this sermon, the hypocrite does not just ignore religion and piety. He does not just ignore God's law. They ignore the true heart behind God's law. And they ignore what it means to trust in his son. They ignore what it means to be pure on the inside as they try to show on the outside. And they ignore the need to live out their faith and good works to the honor and praise of God, not for the applause of men. So they are concerned with the outside and not with the hearts. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 27 through 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The Pharisees provided a great example of what it meant to put on a show. How to make people believe that you are religious. How to make people believe that you are pious. That you are righteous. And there were many who followed in their footsteps even after Jesus exposed their error. Even then, 
for the many, the way of the Pharisees provided a means of obtaining respect and admiration among men. So what was the result of following the way of the Pharisees and building upon the foundation of their own religion and righteousness? Jesus said that everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. In contrast to the wise man who builds upon the rock, the fool builds his house upon the sand. Where the rock represented Christ and his works, the sand represents the righteousness and the religion of man. The rock displays stability, dependability, unwavering, uncompromising, unchanging security. The sand represents something that has no permanent form. It is ever-shifting. It can only be made to temporarily mimic security, yet it has no stability and can provide no protection. The fool sees the ease that the sand represents. It can be moved and manipulated to suit his fancy. It easily bends to his will. And he gives no thought to the cost of depending on something so permeable and unpredictable. The fool has heard the wisdom of the king and yet chose to trust in himself, in his own wisdom instead. It's the kind of folly that was known to Solomon so long ago. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, yet fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 1.32, for the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. Proverbs 12.15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. To advice. The hypocrite proves himself to be a fool, by hearing the words of Christ, and then by refusing to be taught by the Creator of all things. They have been warned of the danger. They have been told that all of their righteousness, no matter how much they could muster, no matter how well they could order their lives, all of it could never be enough. They have been told what God requires of them. And yet they will not be turned aside, and they remain confident in their own way. They have built upon the shifting and vulnerable sands of their own righteousness. And even when they are warned of their fragile position and the storm that is on the horizon, they will not see wisdom. And the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Again, let's look to the wisdom of the Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 29, the way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. Proverbs 13, 13, whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. Unless there be any confusion... The great fall is not about someone receiving less reward at the end of the age or someone having a lesser spot at the table in the feast with our Lord in glory. 
The great fall is a complete and utter destruction that remains, that is there and awaits for all who remain in rebellion against the king of the kingdom of heaven and her king. Paul spoke of the judgment that, that was there, that was coming for those who rejected the words of Christ. The righteous would suffer for a time on this earth. As we said, suffering, trial, persecution is a feature of following Christ. They will suffer on this earth as Christ suffered on this earth. Yet God is going to make all things right. Judgment is coming for all who reject the Son and His gospel. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-10. Philippians, Colossians, and then 1st and 2nd, Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to all who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. Of course, that is pretty similar to the warning of judgment that Paul gave in Romans 2. That because of the hardness of their hearts, there were many who were storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. So the fool builds upon the faulty foundation. And while they may avoid some of the trials of the faithful, he nonetheless stores up wrath for himself on the day of judgment. When the storms of life arrive, the foolishness of his decisions are exposed. When the storms of the fury of God's wrath arrives, he will even curse the mother that bore him. What may be interesting as we read of the building of the wise man and of the fool is that by all external appearances, their houses may look the same. The apparent quality of the house is not what is in question. What is being considered and proven to be vital to the home's survival is the quality of the foundation on which it is built. A lesser house will stand where a greater will fall if the lesser has the right foundation. Calvin wrote that true piety is not fully distinguished from its counterfeit till it comes to trial. In that regard, the storm in Jesus' illustration acts as the light that exposes the quality of the foundation on which one's home is built. The weakest faith, if it is rightly founded, will stand against the greatest storm. 
And yet the greatest faith, if it is not rightly founded, will crumble away under either the storms of this life or before the testing fires of our God. The storms of this life are able to expose what is genuine from what is false, much like the fire reveals what is pure and what is waste. As Paul wrote that the deeds of the flesh will be exposed and only what is of Christ will stand. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 13. For no one can lay a foundation other than what is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds in the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. As we have said, we are discussing the importance of a right foundation over a form that is pleasing to the eyes of men. The ability to weather the storm is not dependent on the man who built the house, but on the foundation on which that house is built. Beloved, when it comes down to it, and the determining factor on whether you will stand or whether you will fall, I want to give you the courtesy of breaking any false illusions that you might have. It isn't about you. It isn't about your ability. It isn't about your knowledge. It isn't about your level of excitement or your boldness or how grand of a display you can make out of your life and how wonderful of a person you are. It isn't even about the strength of your faith. It is all about Christ. Are you established in Christ? Is Christ your foundation? Are you standing on His promises? And are you walking on the path to which He has called you? What is there for me to do but to end the Sermon on the Mount with the call to action that our Lord has given? You have heard the warnings. You have seen what it is to be a true disciple and how easy it is to remain in hypocrisy. Will you believe what our Lord has spoken? Or will you continue to walk in the footsteps of the Pharisees? If you have believed that this is a call to simply work harder, to do more, to slay the dragons that have thus far been too great for you, then let me once again dispossess you of that notion. Just as it was as Jesus gave it, this message is not that you must go out and try harder. The message is that what God requires of you is impossible for you to achieve. You cannot build your house strong enough if it is on the sand to weather the storm. You must stop trying to meet the standard of God on your own. You need to believe the words of Christ. 
You need to take action. And that action is to change the foundation on which you are standing. The gospel demands a response. And that response is to stop trusting in yourself and to trust in Christ. Believe in Him that you cannot be righteous enough to inherit the kingdom. You must enter in by Christ or you will not enter at all. You have to enter by faith. You have to enter enter because Christ is your foundation. Believe in Him. Stand on His promises. Experience the world of difference between trying to do enough to please God and thinking, speaking, and acting differently because you have believed the message of Christ and because He has called us to follow Him. You will not weather the storm if you are standing on your own strength. Yet if you are standing on Christ, there will be nothing that can tear you down. So build your house upon the rock and you will not be put to shame. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the reminder that It is only folly that would drive me to try to be enough on my own. I'm thankful for the ways that you regularly humble me, even though they are painful, because I'm so often reminded that I could never be enough. I could never do enough. I could never be worthy of your kingdom. I could never be worthy of your love. but it is by Christ or not at all that I will be right with my sovereign. Father, I pray that you would not let us walk away unchanged from the precious message of Christ. Protect us from hearing or that we must try to work harder or from going out and trying just to beat our bodies and our own strength to prove that we can do enough. Protect us from that folly, Lord. Let us know what it is to be obedient because we have believed as we have believed that what Christ has said is true and that we have trusted in His Word, in His promise. Then we go forth and live in that. Confidence of our security, confident of the foundation on which we stand, because we know the quality of the one in whom we trust. It is all about Christ. 
Help us to see that, to know that, to believe that, to live like that. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.